Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There has been a story that's been going on in this area for a number of weeks and months now. It's about a guy named John Mulwa, who is a refugee from Kenya, has been here for about eight years. And he has become very involved in the community, especially in the African community as a chef. He has cooked. He's done volunteer work. He's done all kinds of things. And by every account, he has done everything right. He's become exactly as I've written about and as I said a few moments ago, he's become exactly what we would want someone who comes to this country as a refugee or an immigrant. And frankly, anyone who was born in this country, honestly, he's done exactly what we would want them to do and to be. And yet, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote, and other people have written about it and talked about it, including on this station, he was going to be deported on Saturday. January 28th, he was told he had a ticket in hand. He, he was to be sent out of the country. Well, I want to bring in his lawyer, uh, J, uh, Joshua McCory, because uh, there is some good news with this. And Joshua, I'll let you uh, tell what the good news is, because uh, I think a lot of people are going to be happy to hear this. Um, thank you, Scott. Um, thank you for the opportunity to uh, participate in this um this forum, um, as you've rightly said, my name is Joshua McCurry. I'm an immigration lawyer, and particularly an immigration for John Moore. Um, as you've said, John Moore came to Canada many years ago, um, 2014. We are talking about more than almost nine, almost nine years ago. He came here as an immigration, I mean, as an immigration um, uh, refugee claimant. He sought protection, and as a city has always been to a lot of other refugee claimants, his claim was not successful. But despite that, John still continued to provide very essential services to the community. He, as you've said, is a chef. He has been um, very supportive. I think when John came, he uh, moved to Hamilton, and that's where he has lived for the rest of the period that he has been in Canada. Um, and I did now, it reached a stage where he got a communication from the CPSA, Canada Border Services, indicating that he was required to attend for an interview. And uh, when he attended, um, obviously because his migration status warrant, um, you know, he was not a permanent resident or he was not a citizen, so he was required to be deported on January 28, 2023. But, you know, um, because of people like you, Scott, and the many media houses in Hamilton that have been very supportive, have been able to, you know, put out this information, be able to put out the good work that John has been doing in the community, how he has been very supportive. Indeed, that has been able to give us the result that I want to announce, that now John is not going to be deported on January 28th. Um, he, he's been allowed to stay in Canada on what we call the um, uh, temporal resident permit, He's allowed actually to stay for 18 months now, uh, where he's going still to continue to work, to continue to do this amazing work to the community. But we did submit an application for him uh, to become a, a permanent resident under the what we call the humanitarian and compassionate uh, application or a process. Um, I am aware that the minister may have given him this extension so that the application we submitted can be completed. So what I'm saying is that Based on the what we where we are at the moment, I think um, John Muller seems to be on the route of becoming a permanent resident. Mm. Which is, I mean, a lot of people have spoken out about this, and a lot of people have been involved in petitions and other things, and been very concerned about this. 
And so it's great news, but I wonder how common is this? Is this something that you would have expected the result to be, or is this a little more rare than that? No, Scott, this is very rare. I do have a lot of people that are on the list of being um, removed from Canada. Some of them have have been here for a substantial period of time, five years, four years, you know, at least not less than three years. And um, uh, the CPC, the Canada Border Services, under the Ministry of um, Security and um, and, Security and Protection, so their responsibility to remove people in Canada who have no status. And... um, and a lot of people are in that batch of being deported. You know, it's very unfortunate that a lot of these people have no criminal records. These people are, they still up to now, most of them have valid work permit. They are paying their taxes, they are working. But unfortunately, because they have no status in Canada, then they are now being deported. I, I, I know we have, I've spoken to you before about this issue, but, um, you know, uh, Canada is bringing in not less than 250 to 400,000 Im- new immigrants every year um, to be able to, you know, address the issues of work shortages and, I mean, sorry, not to work shortage, but to address the issue of um, people retiring now and to be able to come in and support and pay taxes and support the economy. But it's very unfortunate that even when we have people already who are in Canada who have been able to, you know, who do not need an end of the settlement, they... they did not need to be supported by the government because, you know, when new people come, the government want to train them, the government want to resettle them, but these people don't require any of those. They're here, they want to work, they want to be allowed to stay here and support the economy, they have no any criminal records, they are not inadmissible. But it's unfortunate that most of them are on the verge of being deported. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because that does seem to be a a head scratcher to me because I certainly understand if, you know, we don't want to let everybody in because, you know, it doesn't matter where in the world they're from. There are some people who come here and they don't have good intentions or they intend to come and not participate or, but that's not the case with John. That's not the case with others. If we're going to be bringing in but by 2025, 500,000 people, and there are a bunch of them who have already been here legally, not not cheating the system, but with a legal refugee claim, and they've been signed off to be here, and they've proven themselves, why would they not automatically just be part of those 500,000? That's correct. You see, you see Scott, um, during, the, during the, the pandemic, during COVID-19, um, we had quite a lot of refugee claimants who worked in the healthcare sector, um, these people, they came here, they are new. Either most of them have already previously they have worked in the health care sector, or they came here and they trained. Most of them are personal support workers. Other them are nurses who actually were trained from their, from their, other, from their jurisdictions. And, you know, the Minister for Migration, having considered the tremendous support that most of these healthcare workers provide to the community, supporting our elderly, supporting our those um, in, in in homes, uh, retirement homes, because you know this pandemic was really a game changer. The, the 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 minister for migration decided to provide a pathway, a pathway where a lot of them who are now who are now permanent residents found a pathway, what you call the healthcare pathway for them to become permanent residents because they, the government felt that how can we appreciate these people? How can we also make them feel that we understand that most of them worked in these very dangerous 
um, involvement. But they were going back to their families. They were going back to their very young children. They were going back to, you know, and, and, and you know, even, even when they are not safe to go back, because even most of them went back and they infected their families, their, their spouses, their children became sick of COVID. So the government felt that how can we recognize these people? How can we tell them, thank you for what you've done for us? They, they introduced a pathway that was intended to be able to give them a way for them to become, and quite a lot of them became permanent residents. But, you know, one thing I want to tell you, Scott, is that even as much as this was a provision within the, those who worked in the healthcare sector, there are people who worked in the production, worked in the factories which, pro, which, which produced most of these essentials, essentials that was required. Those who, who served in, 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 um, in most of the stores where people went to buy food, those who served in other areas, those ones were not considered. Mm. The only people who were given a route to be able to become permanent residents were only those who worked in the healthcare sector. But what about somebody who worked in the factory? Absolutely. The factory that was, that, that was actually pro- was producing other very essential <laughs> goods and services that were required to be able to caution this these pandemic and, and the circumstances. But you see, those ones have been left out. And I think that's where people like Murwa falls, people like John falls in that category. Those who were not recognized, they were not rewarded, they were not appreciated. But essentially, they have been told that, you know what, you have to leave the country now. Joshua, now, uh, and for the record, uh, when I, with the question I had before, I want to make clear, I'm talking about those who came here legally as refugees. It's a different story if people snuck across the border or whatever else and, and short-circuited the system. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who came here and did all the things properly. But Joshua, just before we go, if it's difficult for some of these people to come here as refugees or to qualify as refugees so they're going to be deported... And yet, as I said a moment ago, Canada is going to bring in half a million immigrants. Why does someone like John, now he, he's okay now it seems, but someone else like him, why do they not then retract their refugee claim and simply apply as an immigrant because that would then be a bigger list and they could probably get in? That's correct. Scott, you know, um, one thing I want to tell you, they, they, you know, the Canadian immigration system is designed in such a way that it doesn't have those provisions that you're saying. Um, when you come in as a refugee claimant um, and you file your refugee claim, obviously the Canadian government will protect you until after you go for the hearing. So when you go for the hearing, then, you know, and, and I did mention this. You see, when people come here, they are expected to provide evidence in support of their claims from countries where they are running from. And... Um, and, you know, which is a challenge because if you're running away from, from for example, like John, who's running away from Kenya, the, it would be a challenge for him to be able to get evidence from that country. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be difficult to ask someone who wants to kill him if they would sign an affidavit saying they want to kill him. That's correct. So, you see, those are the challenges. And, you know, in the tribunals where most of these people, like John, they, those members who make these decisions will ask them, I am not going to feel that you've demonstrated you met the threshold because you did not provide me any supporting document to demonstrate that you have a problem where you're running away from. But, but that's, the, the member who's, who is making such a finding is guided by the rules and the regulations and the, and, and, and the, you know, the judicial process that is provided because they're not going to depart from that. If they do, then their decision will be challenged. Mm. So now, 
how can somebody who's running away from a country, maybe sometimes in, in Ukraine, how do you send somebody to go and provide evidence from such a country where people are running away because of their dear lives? That becomes uh, a huge problem. Uh, Joshua, we've got to run. I really, uh, I do, really do appreciate you coming on, though, and telling us about this, that, uh, that John Mowa, again, for those who are just joining us, um, who so many people around here have been supporting as he's tried to stay here. He has been granted an extension and will be able to stay in the country for 18 more months while they continue, while he and Joshua continue to work on making him a permanent residence. Joshua, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate no, you're it. You're welcome, Sketch. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about this. There was a um, a piece that was in a paper this today, I think it was, uh, raising questions about, well, we know that the World Cup of Soccer was just he- uh, held in Qatar or Qatar a couple of months ago. Um, and huge cost. I mean, the, the Qatar spent billions and billions and billions of dollars to host. Well, four years from now, that World Cup is going to be in North America, in Canada and the States, and Mexico, they're all splitting it, they're sharing it, and there's going to be a number of games, probably five, that could be held in Toronto, up to five that could be held in Toronto. There's other games that are going to be elsewhere in the country. But now there are some questions being raised about whether or not the Ontario government should be getting involved in spending on this because as of right now, the cost of hosting five World Cup games in Toronto is $290 million, according to this report. Five games, $290 million. And we know that over the next four years, costs probably, if like anything else, costs will rise. 290 may not, probably will not be the final tally. It's a lot of money for some games. Now, there is going to be economic spinoff, of course, but does the one make the other worthwhile? Does the possible economic spinoff make this kind of expense at a time when money is so tight, does it make it worthwhile? Well, the person that we want to speak to about this, um, he, know, he, knows a little bit about, um, he knows a little bit about this kind of stuff. Uh, his name is Neil Lumsden. He is the Minister of Tourism, Culture, and Sport, and he joins us now. Neil, how are you today? Hey, Scott. I'm great. How are you? Excellent. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Glad you're along. And we're glad to catch up with you because I tell you, I mentioned this earlier today when I called you to get you to come on tonight. Uh, I go on Twitter with some regularity and you are in 17 places every day. I've never seen a person in so many places in every single day. I I joke that you've been on the amazing race and I thought you were in a lot of places. It's (laughs) unbelievable how many places you are these days. Well, the good news is I, uh, the amazing race I had to do with my daughter, I had to run most of the places other than, uh, when we were in cars. So this is not quite as tiring, similar, but boy, I'll tell you what, it's, it's been great to get to meet, <clears throat> excuse me, the people in, uh, across the province and tourism and the great stuff they're doing and, and sort of their stories of how they've maintained and, and continue to bounce back after the pandemic. So it's, uh, there's a lot of very good, smart people out there that, uh, are probably better now, even though it was hard to get there than, than they were couple of years ago. Uh, and by the way, no, uh, no bungee jumping, I don't believe, as a minister. Oh, no, I, listen, I've never done that. I've often wondered, would I ever try it? And I think maybe those days of trying crazy stuff like that are done. But feel free, if you'd like to, I'll come and watch. Well, I'm sure that somewhere in Ontario, there is a bungee jumping apparatus, and I'm sure they would be more than happy to have the Minister of Tourism and Culture and Sport come and do it. Well, I, I, I do know I want to try the... Um, what is it? I did it in Whistler in 2010 in the Olympics where you go up and you zip line. There's oh. a, supposedly just a tremendous zip line in Niagara Falls. So 
uh, I've committed to the mayor uh, there that I will uh, I will take a run on that. No problem. Let us get to this story because this uh, this seems to fall into your wheelhouse with uh, two, maybe all three of the titles in your title of uh, mm. tourism and sport and maybe culture as well when the World Cup comes here. Uh, there is no doubt, that, when, and we saw it in Qatar, there's no doubt that when these games come to a city, it is a massive, uh, brings massive attention. There's a lot of excitement. There is, you know, yep. all kinds of good stuff that goes with it. But... This event in particular, Neil, comes with a massive, massive price tag. How do we, how do we justify spending the kind of money that is being talked about for a sporting event? If well, we, if we were to do it, if we were, yeah, if it happens, yeah, if I think that uh, in any situation like that, we have to be talking about uh, the ifs and potential uh, or opportunity. You know, it's uh, the emotional currency that runs strong around sport, which I one of the things that has grown pulled me to it for a lot of reasons after I finished playing is because it's, it's motivating and it's elevating. But at the same time I learned, and I learned this from David Braley around the world cycling and, and other good friends of mine over the years that you've got to take that emotional currency out of what you do and look at to make sure it's the right thing to do. And it's the old expression, you can't win at all cost, And uh, so you have to be smart. And, you know, I, the, our government has been pretty clear we're, you know, talking with uh, Canada Soccer and, of course, the City of Toronto and the federal government that the assessment has to be careful, has to be specific and definitive to look at the risks and the potential impacts, or more importantly, do the risks outweigh the impact and the positive things that would come from an event like this? And so that's still underway. There's other just still discussions around security and some unknowns. And, you know, you've mentioned five games, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone has, has said, oh, yeah, for sure there's going to be five games. To me, um, you know, I, I haven't got enough answers directly on some of the questions that I've asked. But as I said, we're going to, you know, we're going to do, as the saying goes, due diligence before making any commitments to 2026 FIFA World Cup because that's our responsibility to look after uh, the people in Ontario and, not, and make sure that any investments that, that is made or are made have great return and are well worth the spend versus taking a flyer on something. According to the numbers in this story that I'm reading, uh, the cost, and again, we're talking about an if, and if there were five games, the cost is $290 million. The economic benefit, according to a Toronto city analysis, would be $307 million. So it's it's $17 million in the good if everything goes exactly as planned, if costs don't go up, everything else. But let's say it doesn't. Let's say it flips. Let's say it's now $17 million in the red if you do it that you're going to lose or that's behind. Is there a – you've been around sports a long time. As you mentioned, you've been involved in the world cycling. You've been involved in the CFL. Is there a value beyond money that you believe an event like this is worth? That, that, that you know, even if we don't make money, up to a certain point, I believe that – bringing an event like this is worth spending that money on. Do you, do you believe that there is that kind of thing? Well, I, I, it goes back to what I said a minute ago. It, it, you, you can't make decisions based on no matter what at all costs. They, they have to be specific. More information has to come in. I know I'm looking for information. If it's the same, let's just, while we're role-playing here a little bit, if it's the same amount of money, then we only get two or three games, which again, hasn't been decided. So, then things have, you know, is it worth it then still? Uh, and let's try to assess it based on five games. 
So if that's the number that's out there floating around and that's where the analysis is being done based on, on that, it's still, to me, um, a bit of a slippery slope because there are still other pieces with respect to cost that have not been identified and, and at least get a ballpark on. And you can't go into something like this, and this is, this is as much me speaking now as anything else, that with you, if you don't have all the information, and then you can go ahead and say, okay, based on projection, and you just said it, Scott, that money, the value of the money now and then the value of the money in you know, three or four years, that changes, right? So we better be darn sure, and that's why this, like a complete thorough examination is being done at, to, in all the pieces to make sure that if the decision is made, no matter what it is, it's the right one. And then you think about uh, the dollars, and you think about other places maybe that money could be spent. Look, I'm all for, and, and really for developing tourism and driving people into Ontario from all parts of the world, whether you know it's across the border or other provinces. But you have to be smart about it. There has to be calculated. There has to be a very strategic plan around everything that, and there is around everything we do. And uh, I think that's, not I think, that is the approach that the government's taking on this. So, and it's still ongoing. Mm. I mean, it's a big deal. All right. So, I mean, look, not every sports, not every team in every league makes money. I don't think the Hamilton Bulldogs have probably made money ever. Uh, the Hamilton Ticats for years lost money. I don't remember if the World Cycling Championship made or lost money, but... It so, made money, by the okay, way. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, no, and that's good. No, I mean, that, look, that's good. Yeah. But but there are there are events, there are teams, there are leagues that don't. There are teams like the Maple Leafs and the MLSE that makes globs of money. Is there a value beyond dollars to an event like this? We've talked about the economic impact, but is there a value that is beyond dollars to bringing in an event like the World Cup where you say, yeah, you know what, even if it's going to be a few bucks, yeah, you know what, it's worth it because? I think there's value, but it depends on when you examine it closely. Who who is the beneficiary of that value? Is it FIFA? Is it the community? Is it minor sport, minor soccer specifically? Um, and those those elements have to be weighed in as well. I mean, there's no question from what we've seen, even though there was lots of discussion around the previous World Cup and some of the things that had gone on, at the end of the day, um, from a sport perspective, it was pretty fantastic. No question about it. Um, and it'll be fantastic no matter whether I'm watching it on TV or I'm at a stadium live. So that's not going to go away. And, they, and if they're lucky enough to have another World Cup like they just had and right through the playoffs in the final, Good for them. That's great for TV numbers. Great for worldwide TV numbers. But no one benefits from that except for FIFA. So, again, you've got to say, okay, the value proposition is, where does the return on the value come to? And what is it exactly? And that's all part of finding the right formula to figure out whether this works for us or not. Would part of that, and I don't know whether you, I don't know whether anyone from your government, the premier, I don't know if anyone would be this in, would have this many fingers in it, but could you ever imagine the government saying before we give the money, we want to be sure we know who's playing? Because obviously if Canada plays, it'll be a full house, no question. And you may say, look, we want a team, we want a game with Italy because we know that with the population base, that'll work. But we really don't want to put the money in if it's going to be, you know, Bermuda versus Papua New Guinea. (laughs) Um, you know, like, could, could you ever see being that involved to say, yeah, we could do this, but we want to make sure we know we're getting value here. Well, and again, okay. So let me 
start by at the latter part of that question. Is the value of having Canada play, what is that value? Is it where and where does it come from? Does it come back in the you know the energy that becomes within Canada to support soccer? Is it only realized locally? Um, and the and here's another question I have, and I, I've asked these questions of those outside of our government, the people that should be in the know to say, um, do we get a game with Canada? And no one has said to me, oh for sure, you will you will definitely get a game in Canada. Just like no one has said to me that it's going to be five games guaranteed. There are no guarantees right now. So when I, when I get, I'm working with that kind of information and, you know, that's, I'm very much on the periphery here and through conversations with the premier's office. And they're the ones that are truly breaking it down after consultation. But boy, there's a lot that goes into it, Scott. And you, you bring up a great point. If we're not guaranteed a game with Canada in it, in, in Toronto, how does that change things? So um, there, there's still a lot of ifs and buts. And as I said, the, continuing to work with uh, Canada Soccer, of course, with Toronto and the mayor, with the premier and the mayor having met many conversations. And then where does the federal government stand on all this? Good question. Yeah. Well, and, and look, we've seen in World Junior Tournaments, for example, it just I, and that one comes to mind because we've seen World Junior Tournaments in multiple cities like this one would be. Mm-hmm. And you see, you know, for World Junior Hockey, you'll see a game between, you know, Austria and Germany, and there's 12 people in the stands. Right. And you go, what in the world? Like, if, you, if, if Toronto gets stuck with that, that doesn't seem to be a very good spending of the money compared to, again, some teams that would be guaranteed sellouts. But on the same hand, I, I'm assuming that if Vancouver and Edmonton, I think those are the other two that are talking about hosting in the country, they're also going to be wanting those games. Sure, they are. Vancouver, for sure. I think, I believe uh, Alberta's on the outside, I think, or, or maybe they are hosting. I'm not I can't recall sure. now, but yeah. I'm just, we've been focused on what's important to us, and that's Ontario. But um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> You bring up another great question. Uh, what will, because I'm sure everyone will want at least one game that they will have their hosting package to be with Canada, be have Canada in it. No question about it. But again, who out there from FIFA is willing to answer those questions? Um, maybe uh, other people know, and I just haven't been privy to it. But I, my, my belief is we haven't got enough details, or they're working through what we have in the premier's office to be able to do a proper assessment and evaluation on this thing. And you can't do, uh, personally, you can't do that kind of analysis thoroughly unless you've got all the information. And if they haven't got all the information, it puts more pressure on the city of Toronto, who is very bullish on it. And I know, and I understand John Tory's position. I get it. And we can get it. I listen, I can get excited about it in a heartbeat because of what sport means to me and has no matter what the sport is. And then, the impact, but it's got to be a smart decision because this is a whole lot of money and a whole lot of money that may or could be used somewhere else. And that would be part of the conversation after the decision is made. And that brings to one of the other question here. There are those who, Neil, every single time you hear about spinoff <clears throat> benefits of a sporting event, roll their eyes and go, come on, spinoff. Yeah, okay, we can put directly the number of people into hotel rooms and count that as spinoff. But then you get into this ethereal stuff about who's going to come back and what does the exposure to the city mean and all the rest. Do you, do you believe in the concept of all these economic benefits that go with a sporting event or do you think that they are oftentimes inflated? 
No, I, I actually do believe, I do believe in them. When I ran events years ago in my company, we had there was a formula that we went by when we took an event as I did up to uh, Deerhurst and Muskoka, and there is a formula that isn't overly um, in grandiose in, in, with respect to its structure. It was really sort of the middle-of-the-road response you would get based on amount of money spent on gasoline, food and, and restaurants, food and hotel, how long do you stay, what else do you buy when you're there? I mean, that formula would plug in, and it gave a, a, a fairly conservative return of what that event at that time would bring in from a tourism perspective. And that's the way to manage it. I mean, I, when I was at down at the, uh, the boat show, uh, down at the exhibition, which is a fantastic show, by the way, and in the first three days, they had 27,000 people go through the door. So I asked the question, the organizers so where are they coming from and how much are they spending and and they could tell me approximately based on their history and the, and the service that they do of what kind of economic impact because this is a bit of a tourism piece people come to toronto uh and spend a day and a half to go through the boat show and then how many people buy boats when they're there so there isn't there is no question an economic impact for something that cost us from a province for all intents and purposes nothing but the boat show goes in, sets up hosts there, um, and I think it was the 65th annual, which is pretty spectacular. So there are events like that that do an awful lot to the economy because people are staying in hotels. They know that. Yeah, people and, are buying gas, right? And, so, and yeah, and the one the one tricky part about this one, we got to run. The one tricky part about this is uh, the last World Cup in in Qatar. If you went there, if you were from Brazil, let's say, and you went to watch mm-hmm. your country. Uh, you could go to that city because your team was playing in the same place and you could set up shop there for the duration. Well, here, if you've got a game, let, let's say you're let's say you're a fan of Brazil again and you have a game in Toronto, a game in Vancouver, and a game in Colorado, what do you, I mean, are, are you guaranteed that those people are going to come to the Toronto game or are they going to say, ah, you know what, I'm going to go to the other ones because it's easier. It, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a crapshoot because of the spread outness of this. There's no guarantees in anything. You can only go on history and, and then pull the formula together based on what's happened beforehand. And you're right. Uh, to host an event like this and not for sure have a number of games for, that are absolutely going to be played in your city and that Canada would be at least one, if not two games. Uh, uh, tough sell to me. That is Neil Lumsden. He is the Minister of Tourism, Culture and Sport. He's also the uh, the MP for, or the MPP, pardon me, I got I lose my That's it. Yeah. letters, um, for um, Hamilton East Stony Creek. I almost forgot that too. Uh, okay. Neil, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. No, pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.